This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Leadership Lessons. Just a heads up, this episode will contain discussions of mental health, domestic abuse and suicidal ideation. If it does raise any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. A reminder also that if you are in immediate danger to call triple zero and if you need any help and advice, you can also call 1-800-RESPECT or 1-800-737-732. Thank you for listening. Being in control of our finances and building financial freedom from the early stages of our career is something that many of us take for granted. It is one of the most important tools we can teach women to live an independent, safe and secure life. Growing up, our guest did not have many of the financial freedoms we take for granted, but she set out to teach young women about its importance. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I am so excited to be speaking with Mariam Mohammed, the co-founder of Money Girl, a social enterprise designing and delivering financial literacy workshops to young women embarking on their careers. In today's conversation, Mariam, who was born and raised in Pakistan, shares her story, how she landed in Australia with $300 to her name and nothing else, and why she dedicates her time to empowering young women to become financially independent. I'd like to acknowledge today that we are both sitting together, which is a real privilege, on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And on behalf of both of us, I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their ongoing custodianship of this beautiful, beautiful land on this gorgeous day. Hello. Hi, Shelley. It's so great to have you here today. Thank and, you for having me. Oh, and already your infectious personality is uh, going out to all the listeners. <laughs> I um, told you when I'm in front of a mic, there's a whole different Mariam that comes out. No, I love that. I really <laughs> like that. So um, I read a quote of yours mm-hmm. that said that in Pakistan, where you grew up, you grew up in Karachi. I did. A hundred percent of women are sexually harassed during their lifetime. And I think the quote was 25 or 30% of women are sexually assaulted. Okay. So I think the hundred percent is anecdotal because statistics on sexual harassment and assault in places like Pakistan don't exist. So the most up-to-date information that you can find is like from 2004 which is already about two decades ago. But if there were to be an inquiry into sexual harassment and violence against women in Pakistan, my bet would be that the numbers will be 100% of children and women are sexually harassed. And we're talking about everything from walking down the street and being woof-whistled. So, you know, relatively milder forms of sexual harassment to the more serious. Correct. And when it comes to sexual assault, I can bet money that it's going to be about two in three women. So that's the environment in which you grew up. That's right. And you've talked publicly about growing up in in Pakistan and what that was like. You came from a very patriarchal household. I did. I mean, loving but patriarchal household as it goes for a lot of South Asian women, you know. 
So I'm interested, and I know exactly what you mean. I grew up in a household where uh, it was a very strong matriarchy. I see. Uh, but my mother was a very, very strong woman. But I totally grew up with families mm-hmm. that were like that. I want to talk a little bit about your decision to come to Australia. Yeah. So you had these experiences in Pakistan. Did you really just wake up one day and decide you're leaving? How did that – what was the thought process that went through your head? So – I do make a lot of life-altering decisions on a whim. That is the person that I am. Love that. However, did I ever think I was going to move to Australia? No, because I just didn't think there was anything more to life beyond what I had there. So did you grow up thinking that you would have an arranged marriage? And for those listeners out there who don't know, um, for many young women growing up in India or Pakistan or Southeast Asia, arranged marriages, are they happen today. I know lots of people who go home to India to have arranged marriages even today. Absolutely. And look, I will say there is a difference between arranged and forced marriages, right? So when Absolutely. When people who grew up in the West hear the word arranged marriage, they assume a forced marriage. But there is a difference. But yes, I grew up thinking I would be married off to somebody possibly during university or after university. I mean, that is just the life that you're supposed to have when you're growing up there. And to be honest, uh, my the teen years, the, the experiences that led to me leaving Pakistan didn't l- really leave me with a lot of hope that I would even live to be that old, old enough to be married, old enough to finish university, all of that stuff. So I wasn't really even thinking to that point. I was fairly certain that either my abusive ex was going to kill me or I was going to kill myself. One way or the other, I didn't think Mariam would be here today. Um, In fact, I was just talking about this today is my 25th birthday for me was a very big, pleasant surprise. When I was celebrating with my friends, I mentioned to them that I'm I'm so surprised that I'm here. I did not think I would make it to my 25th birthday, but here I am and here I will be. That's a hard thought process to go through, right? That's a really difficult one. One of the questions that I'm keen to explore with my guests is when you're in that space of extreme vulnerability or extreme disappointment, what do you use to stand up again? So I'm not talking about friends and family. I'm not talking about the external um, people you you rely on and get support from. I'm talking about deep within. What is it that you rely on deep within you to stand up again? Yes, I love that. I absolutely love that because it is something that I encourage all change makers to tap into because this can be really draining work. It's my why. My why is that I want my four nieces to have a better life than I did. I don't want them to be sexually assaulted. I don't want them to date abusive partners and stay in abusive relationships. I don't want them to accept abuse at the hands of their fathers and brothers because they've been taught blood is thicker than water or whatever the fuck women are taught these days. That's my why. And when I am ready to give up on a day like today, when I have trouble getting out of bed, what eventually gets me out of bed is that I've been through it and I know that I'm strong enough to make it through it again. 
And I will do so because one, two, or a couple more young women will have it a little bit easier because of the work that I do. It's such a powerful image, isn't it, to think of a young girl out there who might listen to your story or see your picture and think, actually, because of you, I can do it. That's right. I think, you know, a lot of us, I know that um, I hate having my photo taken. I don't like my photo anywhere. But I think of a young girl out there who might look like me, who might think, oh, actually, I can do that. I don't know anyone who's doing a podcast or who's on TV or doing whatever. And if she looks like me, maybe I can do it. And I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind for all of us. It absolutely is. Hey, I can tell you that when I was 19 and I came to Australia and I looked at Australian media and it was so freaking white, every time I saw a brown face, every time I saw Walid Ali or Antoinette Latouf on television, I was like, yes. It's so true. I, do you know, I had a conversation with a really dear friend of mine recently and she told me she was offered a spot on a TV show to host a TV show. She's of Indian background and mm-hmm. she says she didn't take it. Because she didn't see anyone who, this is a long time ago, she didn't see anyone who looked like her. So Uh she didn't think she could be a success. And that really upset me because what we see around us shouldn't be the limiting factor in our own success. But it's so important. Of course it is. Look, because if if there isn't representation, then what you're counting on is a few individuals who see a vision, who have a very clear vision for a different world and will therefore push through those barriers regardless, right? But then that's a lot of work on those individuals' part as well. And we can't expect all people to have that level of clarity and vision and resilience and it's not fair to expect that of people anyway if they don't see it they're not going to believe they'll be able to do it yeah absolutely so you arrive here so tell me how you get from pakistan in the situation you're in to australia with 300 dollars in your pocket I played the good Pakistani Muslim girl for a little while and bribed my father into sending me here. So here's what happened. I did wake up one day, like you said, Shelly, and decided I need to get the fuck out of here. And that day was when my ex, who I had a very troublesome relationship with, tried to cut my only friend out of my life the only person I had left in my life as a support system he had already cut most people out of my life and this was the final string this was all about control this was all about control yes so he could continue abusing me and I would continue taking it because I wouldn't know any better because there was nobody who loved me enough around me to tell me better right so when that happened, all those relationships I had let go of, but this one relationship, my, my soulmate, my best friend from childhood was so important to me. And when he tried to cut that out of my life, I had this realization that he will not stop. I don't know what I'm expecting is going to happen, but he is not going to stop. I, at that point, had already tried to kill myself once and... I realized that if I stayed here, this pattern of control and abuse is going to continue. And one day, either I will be successful in taking my own life or he will be. How old were you? I was 18 at this time. It's too young to be going through all of that. I mean, no age is appropriate, but it's just so young. 
I mean, I would say yes. There's a, I have a wee bit of a grief for a childhood taken away too quickly. Um, but also, I'm a badass bitch. Uh, and I can take it, 18 or 28. Uh, so when that happened, I decided I needed to get out of there if I wanted to stay alive. I either accept that this is going to be my life or I leave. I didn't really see how I could stay there and have access to the support that I needed. And this is where I, I like to talk about my privilege as well. My parents used to live in Australia in the 70s. So because of them, I had an Australian passport, even if I had never been here before in my life. That passport gave me privilege that most other Pakistani women in that situation do not have. They have nowhere to run. They are stuck. They do not have that choice that I had. So that's when for the very first time in my life, the idea occurred to me that I had a passport to a country that I had never been to. And perhaps now was a great time to use that privilege. So essentially, all I needed was a ticket to get here, right? I did not have access to that kind of money. I did work through college, but that was that was not enough to buy a ticket to Australia. So for a couple of months, I played the good daughter, the good South Asian daughter with my dad. I did my prayers, you know, the Muslim prayers. I did all of the good stuff to, to essentially win my father over to my side and um, convince him that it was a great idea to buy me a ticket to Australia for university. So I had applied to universities in Australia and I told my father, whoopsie, that I applied to economics and didn't get in because I'm not smart enough. Whereas in reality, I'd applied to arts, but he doesn't know that. <laughs> Until today. Hi, dad. <laughs> Did, um, and your partner at this time, what's he saying about you going and studying overseas? He's not a part of the decision making process. Okay. So I applied, I did all the application, everything without very many people knowing what all I was up to. I just did it. And then I told them what I wanted to tell them. You know, you learn to play the double life when you grow up in a household like that. So I applied to do visual arts at the University of Sydney, told my dad that I wasn't smart enough to do business or economics or any of the other things that a good brown girl is supposed to do. And... It worked between my playing a good girl and my sisters advocating for me, which again, a very important privilege that led to me being here. If I didn't have strong sisters who were advocating for me, that might not have happened. Eventually I landed here and you know, $300 was all my father was able to give me. So that's what I had. Little did him and I realize that that is one week's rent in Sydney. So have you been back? I have. I've been back twice in the time that I've been in Australia. It took me a little while to gather the courage to go back. But I did after a lot of therapy. Do you look at it through different eyes? I think when I'm here... Inevitably, after a couple of years pass by, I miss quote unquote home, right? 
even if it doesn't feel like home anymore, even if that's not what I call home anymore, I miss the yellow faded chapped walls with overgrown pink bougainvillea and the pale blue sky, pale because of pollution. Uh, the most recent time I went was in 2019. And I do, I do enjoy that feeling of being home, the nostalgia that comes with being in my childhood home and all of that. But inevitably, inevitably, the place puts me back to where I was. I will at some point in that vacation be that 18-year-old who was stuck and vulnerable and who will feel the urge to run the fuck away. It's, it sounds very normal, very normal. So I'm excited to talk to you about Money Girl Ooh. and how that came about. So you land in Australia, you go to university. Mm-hmm. You've obviously, you've come from a background where you didn't control money in your life. You didn't, you weren't able to make decisions that came from financial independence. So where did the nugget come from that resulted in your current business? I think it was the whole journey from my experience in Pakistan all the way to my graduation, my graduation, then my postgrad and the work that I did in Australia. So my personal experience of not being in control of my own money and living with a controlling patriarchal figure, right? That leading into me escaping that, coming to Australia, learning to live on my own and realizing personally how important money is when it comes to all kinds of domestic violence, right? And how money can, is very easily used as a tool to pull strings in controlling relationships. I realized personally that I was constantly just straddling that line between security and going back to a life of violence because I had never learned how the money system works, okay? Like, and that is talking on a systemic level, not at a, I didn't know how to budget level because every human being knows how to budget. Every woman knows better than a man how to manage money, statistically speaking, because women mostly manage household budgets. That's not what I mean. What I mean is the system that exists, how it works, how it's set up, how it impacts me as a woman of color differently than it impacts the white finance bro who I'm trying to learn money matters from, right? So what he is talking doesn't necessarily apply to me. Learning all of that was the journey that I was on in my postgraduate. Me and my co-founder, Melissa Ma, were going through that together, like unpacking how does the system work? How does it impact us as women who might take years out to care for families? How does it impact us as women of color who will have a higher pay gap than a white woman, right? So as we were unpacking this for ourselves, we realized that there wasn't necessarily easily accessible resources like that in Australia. And this is 2018 before the Royal Commission into Banking happened at that time. We also didn't have a lot of the very fun podcasts around money and stuff that exists today. So it was very, very limited in terms of education at that time. That's when we decided to essentially put it in a format that is uh, one research informed. So we know that it is what the community needs. And uh, two, it is uh, informed by behavior sciences. So we want long term behavioral change, not just a bandaid solution. Um, so that that is essentially how the idea for Money Girl was born was from our own needs. So talk us through what a module or program looks like. What sort of things are you teaching? 
So the Money Girl course goes over six weeks. Each week we have one 90-minute workshop that talks about one topic of personal finance. Each workshop is like very fun and interactive. It's not like a seminar or lecture kind of thing. Like a banking seminar. Lord, I've been no. to a lot. I've been to a lot of those. And did you manage to sit through all of them? <laughs> Falling asleep. Because I do not. I have been to like these finance events and like fallen asleep or walked out because Lord knows, like I I ain't gonna do that. No. I you know, they just don't speak to me. So these these this course is designed for young people to engage with their money, right? So it is designed keeping their needs in mind. Their needs include the fact that their attention span is 15 to 90 seconds. So you need to like when you're delivering a concept, you need to kind of make it punch. And then you need to go into like the itty bitty that doesn't require 100%. Okay. Right? And then you need to go into a little like activity kind of thing that drives home the point, but in a fun way, because then be little minds that are, have been trained through social media to not really concentrate for longer than two minutes at a time. So like, that's what I mean. The course is evidence-based so it was formed like it was created through community consultation with over 200 young women so we know what the community wants right but also academics in Australia who've been researching financial literacy and the needs of women in particular for decades so they helped inform what actually went into the curriculum and what did not right um, and also industry experts who then helped us really make sure what is being delivered is correct and on point. So it was a the the way we saw Money Girl work was at the intersection of industry, academia, and community. Okay, all right, and it sounds like there's a real need for it. I mean, if you look at um, homelessness statistics at the moment, the fastest growing population. Is women over the age of 55. That's right. And a lot of that comes from a lack of financial independence. Mm-hmm. So when I hear you talk about your program, it seems that if we can teach young women early enough to look after their financial security, to think about their financial independence, maybe we're actually creating a long-term benefit. That's right. In actually protecting them as they go through their careers and through their lives so they're thinking about it. That's right. And remember, that's a benefit, not just for the individuals, but that's a community societal benefit. That's right. So I strongly believe in age appropriate financial education at different life stages. So a child needs to be taught age appropriate financial literacy. So does a teen. So does a 20 something. And then so do people in later ages, people who are getting married, people who are getting divorced, people whose partners are dying, people who are retiring. Very distinct life stages with very distinct needs and complications. So will one money girl course at the age of 22 fix a lifelong financial literacy problem? No. However, the goal is to be preventative. Engage them in the money conversation when they're that young in the hope that they will remain engaged as they go through various life stages and not feel like money is not something I talk about. We don't we don't talk about money, do we? We don't talk about it. We don't teach it at a young age. We I mean I meet you meet so many people who can't read a balance sheet or don't know how to read financial accounts. You know, we need to be able to speak in those terms, understand what compound interest is, understand what superannuation is. That's be able right. to talk about it and share those ideas. 
Yeah, look, I was having a conversation just today with a 50-something-year-old who's gone through a divorce and is now realizing the impact that has had on their finances and the impact that care responsibilities, et cetera, has had on their super and the fact that they're intending to retire in less than two decades and that they will not be financially secure when they retire, right? And that is a very different conversation to a 23-year-old who is entering full-time work for the first time and is nowhere near thinking about retirement, but knows that super is something, something that impacts my life, right? So you need to have those age-appropriate conversations uh, with people as they're going through these different life stages. Mariam, talking to you, it's clear that you've got some really strongly formed views on I do. lots of different things that you've had time to think about. <laughs> Where did your leadership philosophy come from? Did it come from watching people in your life who had a particular way of doing things or was it something that you developed along the way? Where do you think it came from? I think it's a little bit of both. I grew up with a lot of strong people around me. So um, my sisters are very strong women and I have three of them. Very strong, opinionated, well-educated, just phenomenal women, right? And they are a lot older than me. So I was watching them go through teenage and their 20s when I was still a child, right? That shapes who I became as as a 13-year-old even, right? I had friends around me who have been leading community organizations since they were as young as 16, right? When 16-year-olds out here will be, I don't know, trying to drink illegally, 16-year-olds around me were trying to solve a humanitarian crisis because the state failed the people, right? So it was a very, I think, environment contributes a lot to it. Pakistan is a collectivist culture and it is a state that doesn't necessarily look after the people in the way that a state like Australia does. So it's the people who look after people and that's where my community building mindset also comes from. It's by the community for the community. So when there is a humanitarian crisis. Who is leading the work? It's the grassroots organizations, right? And who's leading the grassroots organizations? People like us. So I grew up seeing that around me, that people took ownership over whatever it was that they wanted to fix and then they fixed it themselves. Growing up and watching that, does it create a sense of responsibility? It absolutely does, and it can be debilitating at times. So I think as you grow older, at some point, it is a good time to go through the journey of where does my responsibility end? Um, how do I draw boundaries so I do not over-empathize with the world? I think uh, for me, that was my early 20s because as I started living on my own and I didn't have parental figures drawing certain boundaries for me and I'm an over-empath myself, I was working myself to the ground and burning out year after year and you know taking six months to recover and then a year later I would be burnt out again. And that was very much fueled by the idea that you take responsibility over what is wrong and then you try to fix it. But that means 
a lot of these problems are systemic. It cannot be fixed by one individual. So when you don't fix it, it becomes like very personal. And then you keep working endlessly because you think you are going to solve the problem. So of course, the, the collectivism, the community mindset, is, it has its pros and cons, just like the individualistic mindset does. What I strive for these days is a nice balance between the two because I have over the years that I've been in Australia, seen the good aspects of the individualistic culture as well. However, there are some aspects of the collectivist culture that I hold very dear, like the community building aspect. So yeah, you do take learn to take too much responsibility. You do learn to burn yourself out. You learn to sacrifice yourself for the greater good, as they say. Because in a collectivist culture, you are taught that the community is more important than the, the individual. individual. So every time we talk about one of these questions, you've obviously done a lot of thinking about each of these each issues. And you mentioned earlier that today's not a great day. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had better. Mm-hmm. So the voice in your head. Mm-hmm. Yes. We all have it. It can be debilitating some days. It can encourage you to do great things. It can hold us all back. Two questions. How do you deal with the voice in your head? And is the voice in your head your voice or is it the voice of people around you? That is a fantastic question. It is definitely my own voice. It is my inner critic. However, that is a learned behavior from my mother. So my mother is a perfectionist and I am a recovering perfectionist is how I like to put it. So I learned from her to be a perfectionist, which means I have... um, control issues. So when I first started the business, I very much liked to be the person doing everything because everything had to be done the way it was in my head. And you learn that skill over time that something is better done imperfectly than not done at all. So it is definitely my own voice in my head. What I've learned over time though, to answer your first question is how I deal with it, is that that voice is my inner demon. It is not the voice of truth. It is not the voice of universal truth because there ain't no such thing. But to be able to reason with that voice, to challenge it is a skill that I have learned over time. Because when I think, especially during teenagers and for some people throughout their lives, we will believe that voice kind of as if it's the voice of truth right? Like, oh, it's my inner voice. It must be telling me um, the the right thing, the true thing. It's like, a real journey, isn't it? To actually confront your inner voice and say, actually, stop. Yeah. And, and, and question it like, oh, okay. So you think I'm really stupid. Well, why? What, what evidence do you have? The way my therapist puts it, okay, is you play judge with the two voices, the outward voice and the inner voice. And you, you ask them both, what evidence have you got for your case? So do you talk to your voices? Oh, hells yes. Who, excuse me. How, what am I supposed to like? I can't have an entire conversation in my head. I got to do this shit out loud. So yes, I will be sitting right there on my desk and I will be like, Mariam, listen, this is literally me. I talk to, my, I will talk to myself. Mariam, listen, come on. Don't be so rude to yourself because sometimes the voice in your head is really cruel. Well, somebody told me that, I think it was Taria Pitt, said that she tries to tell her in a voice to talk to herself like she was her child because mm-hmm. she would never talk to her child like that. Yes. So why would she let her in a voice talk to her like that? Yes. So, and you can, 
imagine anyone you love. So at one point when I was first learning this skill, my therapist trained me to talk to myself the way I talked to my partner, my then partner, because I would never say that shit to him. So why would I say that to myself? But yeah, I will, sometimes the voice in my head will say something really mean, you know, like, oh, you are so dumb. And I know that doesn't sound that bad, but you know, like I can't be calling myself stupid. It is because it's incessant. Our inner voices are incessant. They're with us all the time. And then you start believing them. You start believing that you're not worth it or whatever. It's important for us all to realise that everybody's head is similar. Like we're all playing through these conversations in, in our heads. My head is a very busy place. Yes. Do you have 11 <laughs> tabs open in your brain all the time? Or 111 I've never thought about the tabs it? open. <laughs> Lots of multiple conversations What do you do on? with the voice in your head, Shelley? I, do you know, the voices in my head are not my voice. Oh, they're the people. They're the people you. around me. So they're never the people, because I've done a lot of dissecting of this, they're never the people who I know love me unconditionally. Mm-hmm. So they're not my family. They're not my kids. They're not my husband. They're And they're not close friends. They're the people generally I work with or I know in a work setting, you know, they're, they're telling me why I can't do something or I'm playing out conversations in my head with them that I might have if it goes wrong. Yes. And so it's those. It's probably even a worse form of psycho really in my head. But uh, so it's those conversations and I'm playing those through. Yep. Um, And I think that is another very common thing is to put yourself in situations that have not happened or might not happen, but your brain puts you in that position. So all of a sudden you're there. Yeah, absolutely. You're in that place and having that conversation with that person. Yeah, absolutely. Again, as a very normal thing. I, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. And I think the problem with that is that when things don't go as you expect, it always shocks me. Because in my head, I think I've gone through every scenario. Yeah. But there'll always be one that you don't think of. Well, of course. Because you know, that's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it can surprise me sometimes. Yeah. And again, even in those situations, like I think I do that sometimes, the putting myself in situations that have that have not happened, not intentionally, my brain just does it. And all of a sudden I'm somewhere else. And I mean, that's a hello root of all anxiety in the world. But again, it's important to have that conversation of challenging. What am I doing right now? Why am I having this conversation in my head? Why is my brain in this place? Like, Whereas in reality, I am here. I am not under that threat, but I feel like I am. And actually playing it out, I think, I mean, that's, that's what I do. So I will, I will ask the voice in my head like, oh, you think I'm stupid? Excuse me, what proof have you got? I love that. And Asking the, and then, for evidence. Exactly. And then the outer voice will be like, well, I think I'm fucking brilliant. And here's all the proof I've got. Nice. What have you got? Nice. <laughs> so Money Girl's thriving. You do motivational speaking. You go and do public speaking in corporates. You said that gives you energy. It does. Uh, what's next? You're young. So what's on this journey that life is, what's next? What else do you want to achieve? You have the opportunity to have multiple careers these days. I do, and I will, because I'm a very standard millennial who will not commit to just one thing in life. <laughs> um, I'm also a idea person, so, and that is my strength. Um, it also means that I don't do one thing forever. 
I do a lot of things at the same time or I move on from one thing to the other. I like starting things. I like setting them up. I don't like doing the same thing forever. Do you finish things? I finish things, yes. But I also quit when I need to. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I'm not a serial finisher and I'm okay with that. So if you start a, <laughs> if you start a novel that you, don't, you realize you don't like, you put it down? Yeah. Nice. Took me years to do that. I think initially I wasn't because I was taught winners don't quit, right? Yeah, so you finish to the end even if it's rubbish. It, it, it was the sunk cost fallacy. I think actually working in Money Girl and like seeing it play out in other people's lives, I've become more comfortable with the sunk cost fallacy of like, okay, this is not serving me well. I need to quit. Yes. Whether that's a novel or a project I've started, whatever. I'm now very comfortable quitting and moving on. So what's next? What are you moving on to next? I'm moving on to a couple. So I have over the next, I don't know however many years. Okay, I don't put timelines on these things. Like I said, I do a lot of things I do in life on a whim. I know that I will write a book soon. Um, and I will have a show of my own. What does that show look like? A podcast, a television show? I don't know, but it will because I love to talk about money, sure, but essentially what I love to talk about is gender and race, the intersection of gender and race and how that plays out in the world that we exist in. But I like to do that in a storytelling way, and I think that's the reason why I do public speaking at all is... I like to tell these stories that start conversations. And so I will do that on my own terms at some point. When that will be, I don't know. It might be next year or it might be when I'm 55. But you will expect, you can expect a medium-themed show at some point in your life. Well, I will buy the book. I'll listen to the podcast. Thank you, Shelley. Mariam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Shelley. This has been wonderful. What a pleasure it's been to spend this time with Mariam. She has a zest for life and an exuberance that is infectious. And I hope that like me, today you've been left with a smile on your face and a beat in your step. If there's one thing that we can all learn from her, it's the immense sense of gratitude she carries through everything she does. And understanding that her journey was part of her pathway to get her where she is today. A sense of self-belief that has motivated her to stand up in front of women all over this country to help create a generation of financially independent, financially secure and financially literate women. Thank you for being with us today. As always, we welcome your feedback. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me anywhere on social media. If there's a guest you'd like to suggest, please let us know that too. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. Thank you for spending time with us today. See you next time. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.